Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff. Thanks for joining us. I am delighted to introduce you to the first Inequality Podcast, sponsored by the Stone Center for Research on Wealth Inequality and Mobility and the Harris School of Public Policy. I'm doubly delighted that our first guest is Samuel Bowles, who not only is one of the, uh, the great scholars of the second half of the 20th century in social science, but to be honest, one of my personal intellectual heroes. Now, why would I use such effusive praise? Well, one reason simply is that Sam was working on inequality before it became central to economics, and in fact, is one of the individuals who made inequality a central focus of economic research. A second reason is not only did Sam make the question fundamental to economic research, his willingness to entertain the broadest set of possible explanations, to integrate ideas throughout the social science in the addressing of inequality, and his fundamental humanity in identifying morally salient dimensions of inequality make him a really remarkable scholar. And when I say that he's an intellectual hero, I don't mean simply because of his uh, his intellectual achievements. What I mean by that is that he's also somebody of great personal intellectual courage. It is not the case that his work was initially received in open arms in many cases. He was controversial. And his career and his trajectory reflect this constant desire to to speak truth to academic power, as well as to adhere to the highest scholarly standards. And so for all of these reasons, I can't honestly cannot think of a better guest to introduce the Inequality Podcast uh, here at the Harris School. Now, unsurprisingly, given the fact every time I talk with Sam, we can literally go for hours thinking and, and reviewing and debating different aspects of economics, social science, and related, and any question you can imagine, this interview violated all of the uh, time constraints that I was given by the producers. And so for that reason, this is going to be a special two-part episode in which, uh, in the first part, we will spend some time talking about Sam's intellectual development a bit, and a bit about the history of his uh, fundamental research in inequality. In the second episode, we'll, of course, talk about his re- inequality research, but focus a bit more on his more contemporary research agendas, as well as talk about his uh, efforts to improve the economics curriculum. I should mention that despite the advances in 21st century technology, speaking with Sam uh, while he was in Italy did lead to a somewhat uh, different quality of recording than is, uh, is the usual for this podcast, but rest assured, the listen is absolutely worth it. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to introduce uh, Samuel Bowles, who's research professor at the Santa Fe Institute and a professor at the University of Siena. Sam has been a champion of the study of inequality throughout his career, a champion of interdisciplinarity, efforts to integrate ideas from sociology, psychology, evolutionary biology into economics, and a rare individual whose research has both the themes of continuity throughout his career, as well as themes of change. In other words, the Sam Bowles of schooling in capitalist America is different from the Sam Bowles of a cooperative species. 
but it's that intellectual courage that makes for the best social science. And so, Sam, it's uh, it's wonderful to, to have you join us. And thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's great to be on your show. And I look forward to our conversation. So, Sam, I thought the first thing we might talk about is a little bit of uh, your intellectual trajectory. As I, as I mentioned, you've been thinking about inequality from the beginning of your career. Might you give us a sense of where your thinking started, where it is today, and uh, define to some extent what the, uh, what the elements of continuity and change are? Well, Stephen, the story goes back even farther than you might suspect. When I was 11 years old, I was a schoolboy in New Delhi, India, and I was going to an Indian school. Uh, that is, um, my two sisters and I were the only non-Indian kids out of 2000 in this school. I came home one day and I asked my mom, look, um, I'm doing okay, but I'm really not able to do things better than these kids. I'm actually kind of average in uh, math and in sports and so on. How come they're so poor if we're really all the same? That's age 11. But I, that question kept with me. Why is the world so unequal globally? When around the world, I know from my childhood, my friends, the people I played sports with and so on, were really very, very similar. And so I eventually... Um, drifted into economics. And I got a degree in economics, uh, and I got a pretty good job, actually. I was teaching at Harvard. And so the second stage in my interest in inequality was I had um, met Dr. Martin Luther King. Like Dr. King, I was engaged in the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement. And he had kindly assisted in an organization which I was involved with in going door to door and uh, talking to people about the war, um, and I'd spent a bit of time with him. So he knew there was this guy at Harvard who did economics, and when he shifted to study inequality, he asked if I could uh, answer some questions about how the economy worked. Oh my God, you can imagine, I was 27 years old, and that's why I had studied economics, so that I could help out with a person like Dr. King. And I looked at the list of questions, there were 10 or so, and I was shocked. I didn't have a clue where to start answering them. Now think about that, Stephen. Here I was, a PhD, just got a good job in economics. Dr. King sends a bunch of questions. They are definitely about economics, no question about that. I couldn't answer them and didn't even know where to start. I was angry, I was ashamed, I was disappointed. And I remembered saying to myself, well, I'm either gonna leave economics or I'm gonna change it. And so that was what got me into trying to change what economics was like, because it just, to me, was scandalous that I had studied and done well, and I couldn't address the questions about job flight from center cities or returns to education for black and white Americans and so on. And that's how I got started. So, Sam, if you don't want to pursue this, you should say so. But could you say a little bit about the role of your parents in shaping these these ethics? In other words, the story you told about your mother is very moving. And, of course, your father was uh, he was ambassador to India and, and you know, was, was a great champion of, uh, of progressive causes. And so if you're comfortable, I, can you say something about how you, you see that evolution? Well, the, the first thing you already know, which is that you can imagine in the early 50s, 
the, the kids of diplomats, they all went to school up in the mountains somewhere, some very elite school. And uh, my mother just wouldn't have it. You know, she went to a public high school. She was a cheerleader and she was she did all the high school stuff. My dad went to a prep school and he never heard the end of that from my mom. Uh, they were kind of down on uh, private schools in, um, in our family. So that was part of it. Um, my dad was really uh, a champion of the third world in the 1950s. And he, he thought that Africa, Asia, Latin America should insofar as is possible stay out of the Cold War. They had important things to do in terms of essentially raising the living standards and the health status uh, and the human rights of their populations. So he was constantly battling with the Eurocentric position of the State Department. And also um, he got into a bit of trouble because he opposed the Bay of Pigs invasion uh, under John F. Kennedy. He was at the time under Secretary of State. And that was um, not well received by the Kennedy brothers. So they, I, I think they decided to do the worst thing they could possibly think they could do to somebody, which is to send the person off to India. So back he went to India in the 1960s. Of course, he was happy as he could possibly be, as was my mom. But that did kind of end his career. So, I mean, I can't say that my dad was a rebel, but um, he certainly was not a conformist when it came to political views. And I, uh, I'm very grateful to them for having passed on that spirit of independence, uh, which I have pursued in, in my modest way as best I could. Sam, how would you characterize the evolution of the frontier of inequality research over the last half century? In other words, you were, I was going to say you were present at the creation, but you were part of the creators, so it's more than being present. Uh, and you've continued to create till today. And so I think that it would be fascinating to see how you, you perceive the, the successes and the failures of, uh, of inequality research. Well, the, the first thing that really strikes you today, Stephen, is just how much research there is being done on inequality. But if you think about what's changed, um, mostly it's great. Remember in the 70s and 80s, even as late as the 90s, the so-called efficiency equality trade-off was taken as being an essential part of what every undergraduate had to learn. And in fact, you'll find it in virtually every intro textbook. Well, starting in the 90s, people started to look at the data. And of course, the thing that jumped off the page was that Latin America was highly unequal and doing pretty poorly, whereas East Asian countries were much more equal in terms of their disposable income and also in terms of their wealth. Uh, and they were doing great. Uh, now, of course, that gross comparison, East Asia, Latin America, doesn't really demonstrate much. Uh, but research done since then has begun to develop an understanding about how it might be that inequality is not actually greasing the wheels of economic progress, but rather sand in the gears. High levels of inequality might actually be a barrier to economic progress, simply meaning growth of, uh, of productivity and so on. So good to see uh, the, uh, the equality uh, efficiency trade-off um, uh, out the door. Um, one of the things I'm also very happy about is economists, often pressed by philosophers and the public and others, um, are asking now inequality of what? Uh, increasingly, the question of wealth inequality has come up. 
uh, as for example, at your Stone Center at University of Chicago to focus attention on the problem of wealth concentration, not uh, just income inequality, but also extending outwards towards other things that people care about. Of course, we're interested in equality of opportunity, but increasingly also we hear about equality of voice, how much your voice counts in the running of your firm or the running of your community. We even hear uh, calls for equal dignity, as people should have dignified lives or the opportunity for dignified lives. Now, broadening out the, uh, the scope of uh, inequality and what it is that we find it offensive about it seems to me a very good thing. But let me move on. Other, other things that are important, uh, in the last decade, there's been much more attention to the problem of uh, the lack of competition in product markets. The old question of monopoly. Uh, now, I remember in the 50s and, and 60s when I was studying economics in the 70s, when I was uh, teaching, when I was beginning my teaching career, I was very skeptical that monopoly really was a big problem in, uh, the, in America. What I've found recently is that uh, the evidence is overwhelming that the uh, barriers to competition, barriers to entry and so on, are actually uh, contributing to the increase in income inequality in the US and lots of good attention is being devoted uh, to that. Um, another thing which I see happening uh, and it's, um, it's maybe not pervasive, but I, I see it in a lot of places, so much in the 60s, so much of what we studied was using human capital theory and um, uh, theory of labor markets. We were trying to figure out why people are poor. And I find a lot of attention now being directed to why people are rich. And of course, this directs us then immediately to the question of intergenerational transmission of wealth and, and privilege. Uh, and that's important because quantitatively, it's very important to understand how wealth inequalities persist over long periods of time. But also morally, it's very important because people often differ about what they think the quote right or acceptable amount of inequality is. But if you ask people about the inheritance of wealth and that being the primary basis for inequalities, people are much more willing to say, well, no, that really isn't. Or, that's not a, a morally justifiable basis for inequalities. So I see the study of inequality by economists and by other disciplines as this in, a very exciting, vibrant field, which is for the most part focusing on very real and important problems. So where would you say have been the uh, comparative failures of the evolution of economics in terms of studying inequality? I think you've, you've alluded to one of them, which is at least I, 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 I'm very sympathetic to what you had to say about power relationships and, uh, and the notion that uh, equal voice is a dimension of what we mean by a just society. As one, I would identify that as an area where I think still that's not exactly mainstream. Are there others that you would focus on? Our very narrow view about inequality of what? It's hindered our, our understanding of the inequality phenomenon we're trying to study, but also it's made it difficult for us to talk to people outside of economics uh, because we seem to have a very uh, narrow 
view of what the problem is. And I find it a little distressing today, even, for example, that people in the, on the left of center, a very popular slogan or a popular objective is shared affluence. Well, yes, of course, shared affluence. But what about um, sharing the other fruits of our society, uh, not just money, uh, but sharing the, the opportunities for writing your own biography, for leading your own life and making choices. Um, an equalization of those things, which are vastly different now between the highly educated and wealthy and the less educated and less wealthy. Uh, so I think that is um, a, uh, an important problem. Yeah. I mean, some of what you say brings to mind Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum's ideas about capabilities. Uh, did you want to elaborate on, on that dimension? Part of what I think is distinct in your vision is that um, I, much of the capabilities discussion you know, is focusing on things such as education, the ability to practice religious beliefs, health, et cetera. But you brought up this issue of voice, and that is the organization of activities so that ex post, there's a type of inequality, but it's not inequality. It's not equality of outcomes in the conventional sense of re, you know redistributing uh, wages across people, but it's equality in the organization of act, of uh, of activities that reflects democracy. Well, absolutely. I mean, I I've really focused much more on the question of democracy and voice. It really comes to this, Stephen. Capitalism is a profoundly undemocratic economic system in that in the private sector, some people have extraordinary powers making decisions over life and death matters affecting their employees. And people say, well, okay, if the employees don't like it, why can't they walk away? Well, they can't walk away because they can't be assured of getting a decent job in some other place. Uh, now, that kind of power uh, is something which we think of as in a democracy should be accountable. The, the fact that the government has the power to make life and death decisions over us is one of the reasons why we argue that, that morally uh, a democracy should make accountable the power wielders of the society. But the CEOs of our major companies uh, are wielding the kinds of powers that we normally would think of if it was a government should be made accountable by democratic rule. Suppose you compared the kinds of powers that a CEO of a major company has to the kinds of powers that a mayor has, a mayor of a city. They both have a lot of power. But if somebody told you that, oh, well, actually, you know, we don't have to elect mayors because if you don't like living in this town, you can go to some other town. People would say, no, that's not the way we do it. Uh, a democracy, you elect political leadership. Well, why is economic leadership exempt from that? And the reason is that economics has done a very good job of hiding the exercise of power in the private sector. Well, it, it seems to me that you're, you know, part of what you're defining as a new research frontier is the, uh, is the 21st century. And I'm going to say analogy, and I'll explain why I think it's a weak analogy to the, uh, the socialist calculation debate. And what I mean by that is the traditional dichotomy is whether or not centrally planned economies could be efficient or not. And I will stipulate for the sake of argument that I think Hayek was essentially correct, conditional on the institutions he was referring to. But you're talking about something much deeper, which is how do we organize act, um, or organizations such as firms, which of course can preserve the uh, the types of efficiencies that Hayek talked about, yet do so in a way that, that treats the workers uh, 
with the with the respect and the uh, and gives them the agency that that you think is lacking. Is that is, do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes, and and I think that's a very good way of putting the problem. Um, what Hayek showed is that a central planner couldn't possibly have all the information necessary uh, to plan an economy. Then a number of people pointed out, well, big firms are just many centrally planned economies, um, employing in some cases millions of people. Um, how does the management of the firm manage uh, the firm? How do they get the information? How does that work? Well, the fact is, it's a problem. Uh, and one of the reasons why it's a problem is that the people who the manager is hiring and who the owners are becoming rich because of their labor, they don't have any particular interest in sharing the information. Now, the question is, could a more democratic society work better? I think we can set aside the question, could a more egalitarian society work better? I think we know the answer to that is yes, we have plenty of examples of it. We don't really have to sort of have that debate anymore. We know that pursuing egalitarian programs, there are well-designed egalitarian programs that can enhance both productivity uh, and equality. But the question is, uh, what about a more democratic uh, society? Now there, I think there's a serious problem. If you think about capitalism, capitalism is basically an innovation machine that generates a lot of inequality. It concentrates power in the hands of a small group of people who are so wealthy that they're able to take risks on a grand scale because in technical terms, they're approximately risk neutral in economics. And so that's a feature of this system which makes it highly innovative by decision-making being placed in the hands of risk, people willing to take risks. And they're able to because they're capable of borrowing, because they're wealthy and so on, they're protected. Now, suppose that I come along and say, I think the structure of a capitalist firm is undemocratic and it tends to deprive people of voice in important affairs. And very often it's associated with indignities that they're being treated poorly. And I'm talking about things like, like sexual harassment or racial slurs or whatever that managers can get away with just because the person really, really needs that job. Now, could we really change that? Well, let me pose this as a serious problem. If you take the power currently being wielded by the, by the very wealthy, uh, these risk-taking very wealthy people, and put it in the hands of ordinary citizens, or at least let the power be more widely shared, you'll, you'll necessarily be putting decision-making power in the hands of people who are more likely to want to avoid risk-taking, just because they're not wealthy enough. Um, the first thing you'll notice if you look at data is that some of the most innovative countries in the world today are extraordinarily equal. Uh, and so, for example, every year Bloomberg posts a list of the uh, top, uh, the most innovative countries in the world. And Americans will be surprised to know that America is not in the top 10. And the countries that are in the top 10 include South Korea, which is very egalitarian compared to the United States, and a whole bunch of Northern European countries, which are famous for their low levels of inequality of disposable income. So what we're now posed with is, I lay out a fairly strong position, which is that a more egalitarian society with a more participation in government by trade unions and so on could actually be less innovative. 
Could I ask you to elaborate on this a little bit? I think that yeah. uh, one might say, well, look, if you ask, if you define innovation by the absolute upper tail of science and, you know, call it fields, medals, Nobel prizes, et cetera, the United States still looks awfully good. And so could you sort of define innovation a bit more? Well, I mean, there are a number of ways you could do it, but if you simply look at, for example, over the past 50 years, in which countries have we observed very rapid rates of growth of productivity? The United States has been distinctive in the last decade or a decade and a half, but it isn't over the long run. I think the challenge is, can we devise ways of fostering a rapid rate of innovation in a democratic economy? Uh, now, I think we can learn also from other kinds of historical experience. Agriculture in the United States, uh, including small uh, business agriculture, uh, has been highly innovative at very rapid rates of growth of productivity over 100 years or so. And very many of those innovators were not particularly wealthy. Is there a model there? Well, a model there would be, yes, there was a lot of technical assistance, but also there was a lot of insurance. If we want to democratize decision-making, we have to think of new roles for insurance so that where it's possible to design insurance, so to protect people from risks, can we do that in such a way that an economist would say is incentive compatible? That is, it cannot be gamed by the people engaged in those insurance. And the answer is, well, yes, we can. Uh, think about the wealth that an ordinary person has in America. Their wealth is almost entirely their house and their car. If your wealth is in your house and your car, and you have huge fluctuations in house prices, well, you're exposed to a lot of risk. That's unnecessary. We could have house price insurance in the US, uh, which protected people from those huge fluctuations in price of their homes. Uh, and it would work like this. You get a payment for your house price, not if your own house price goes down, but if everybody else's house price goes down. In other words, it's queued to house prices in your neighborhood or in your city. If you're suffering a burst of a housing bubble or something of that nature, you'll be insured. It also means, by the way, that you're gonna pay in if housing speculation in your area is leading to house price increases. Now that's a simple way that we could basically protect ordinary working people, middle-class people, from the from the fluctuations in the economy which make people very reluctant to take a chance on for example joining with a bunch of fellow workers and organizing a co-op which is another risky thing to do so i appreciate you you moving a switch to policy because i wanted to ask you to give some of your judgments there so to be concrete thinking about intergenerational mobility if you suddenly became the uh the social planner for the united states what policies would you uh, most come to mind in terms of things you'd like to see implemented? And, I, I, and I'm, I'm relaxing all political constraints, so I want to sort of get the bold vision of, uh, of how to increase mobility. Um, the most obvious one is to tax inheritances. Let's have a tax which um, is uh, confiscatory for any wealth greater than the value of two houses, except you don't have to pay it in taxes. If you want to give it to a charity, you can do that. Now, we're not saying that um, people can't dispose of their wealth. They can. They can give it to the Cancer Association or they can give it to a university. But the one thing they can't give it to is to their children. We could do the same thing with private schools. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in private schools. I don't agree with my mother entirely on that score. 
What's wrong with private schools is not that they're private. What's wrong with private schools is they're funded by the parents of the kids who get to go there. What would that mean? Well, you can have private schools, the private schools can raise money, but the only thing that's prohibited is they can't get money from the people who attend the school. Now, why would you do that? Because you think that the private management of a school might actually be a contribution to innovation and educational methods, school choice, and so on. Uh, that, that might be a good idea. But what's not a good idea is having wealth gives you a privilege in, in, in attending really high quality schools. Um, would you say that on schools, would you say the same thing with respect to universities? Uh, yes, absolutely. But, you know, there, there are some other more kind of ordinary things that would make a big difference, too. If we really had a school system which was more like either Finland or South Korea, in the sense that was actually less inegalitarian or more egalitarian in its outcomes, that would make a big difference. A, a very high level of high quality schooling for everybody would make a difference. That's not an easy thing to do. Uh, we've learned some things about how to do that, but I don't think we should give up on the standard measures uh, that America today seems to be doing particularly badly at. Maybe another also very conventional thing is, I think the weakness of the trade union movement in America has been a serious problem uh, for the development of inequality. There are many different ways that people can have a voice in economic affairs. The one which I am particularly interested in and have studied to some extent is the idea of worker ownership of firms. But there are many ways around the world that workers have had a say in what goes on in the places where they work and gives them a chance to have equal voice or almost equal voice is collectively bargaining with, um, with management, either through unions or through membership in co-determination councils as in, uh, as in Germany. So, Sam, can we return to Dr. King's questions? Yeah. Are there particular ones that resonate today with you? A lot of them had to do with cities and suburbs uh, and uh, also returns to schooling. I think one of the questions that I know he was interested in, and, I, and we I don't think it was one of the list of questions, but it was one that he pondered a lot, is what are the political barriers to addressing uh, economic inequality? Why is that so difficult in a democracy when the rich are relatively few and the not so rich are relatively many? That is, there's a, there's a political process problem that we hadn't addressed then and uh, we still haven't addressed. I think that's a puzzle. So that leads naturally to the questions of racial inequality. And, and once again, I ask kind of on the evolution of your thinking. Obviously, you came of age. Uh, when the civil rights movement was was developing, and there was extraordinary achievements there, but the persistence of black-white inequality is it is the salient twenty first century fact, and so I'd be very interested to know your thinking about uh, uh, where we were, where we are, and what we don't know. Well, where we were at the time that I was interacting with Dr. King was we were at a very uh, optimistic point in our history. We thought, I mean, we, the you even had people writing about, you know, the end of uh, racial discrimination and so on. In those days, we thought a non-discriminatory society will become racially egalitarian. That view has now suffered some serious damage. Uh, I, I have to say this carefully because we, of course, never became a non-discriminatory society. The discrimination has been there, but I think it's been greatly modified since the 50s and the 60s. 
and yet racial differences persist. I think this has forced economists, some at least, to look at the processes by which racial differences can be persist in the absence of overt discrimination. All it takes is a high level of segregation to, in order to perpetuate a lot of racial differences, even if active discrimination is not uh, being sustained. It's interesting. I think there are two big facts that people ought to really take on board. One is that racial inequality is alive and well in America, unfortunately. Attitudinal changes and changes in culture and exposure to people of different races and an African-American president has not put an end to the economic inequalities facing uh, African-Americans. The other fact is that inequality in the U.S. appears to be increasingly taking on a class character. Big differences are, are now evident between people with higher levels of education and less high levels of education. So though racial inequality has persisted, privilege according to level of schooling and those things associated with level of schooling, like wealth, for example, and um, well-placed parents, uh, that uh, is also uh, very alive and well in America, and if anything, increasing. Those two things are not at all contradictory. Race continues to be important, but the divide between the BAs and the people that don't have BAs, as has been famously developed by many economists, is a now a major divide in our society. Well, I wanted to end actually by recommending to the audience a book by Sam and Herb Gintis uh, called Democracy and Capitalism, which um, it, it's actually a book that influenced my uh, thinking, uh, you know, throughout my. Uh, you know, for literally for decades. It's a profoundly humane vision and, uh, and one that uh, I think speaks to the ethical underpinnings of much of what, what Sam's talked about today. But Sam, really, the main thing to say is thank you. I could not uh, have enjoyed the conversation more or learn more. And so very grateful to you. Thank you, Stephen. I always enjoy our conversations. Let's continue the, uh, the talk. For our final segment, which we are calling the Inequality in Perspective segment, we hope to take something from our guest interviews and provide you with more in-depth, personal examples of these topics. For our first Inequality in Perspective segment, we decided to focus on an interesting comparison Sam Bowles made between the chief executive officer of a company and an elected government official such as a mayor. As he pointed out, both a CEO and a mayor yield much power, but government officials are held accountable to voters, while most CEOs are not held accountable to their workers. He illustrated the incongruity, the hypothetical example of a town that does not elect their mayor. The only options for their residents are either to go along with a mayor or to move. Sam is, of course, correct in saying that most people today would find such a town ridiculous. As he put it during the interview, that's just not how things are done in this country. But there are interesting instances in history where exactly, exactly this was done. And one of the most notable examples was the company town of Pullman, located on Chicago's far south side. Devised by George Pullman to house most of the workers of his Pullman Palace car company, the town of Pullman, the man had a penchant for naming things after himself, was to serve as a model for how to treat workers and tamp down labor revolts. Pullman generated much attention, both domestically and internationally. It was a bold and in many ways innovative approach to a growing problem. 
Think of it this way. Right now, AI technology has led many to worry about its impact on job security. In fact, the Writers Guild of America, the Union for Hollywood Writers, felt so threatened by the technology that when they went on strike, they demanded that the studios promise to limit their use of AI in writing shows. Now, imagine if someone came along with a solution that promised to achieve the perfect balance between innovation and safeguarding workers, something that would satisfy unions, laborers, corporations, and consumers all at once. This is what Pullman was trying to do. He was met by skepticism and optimism, with people falling back on their prior beliefs in the face of something so unprecedented. And so Richard Eli, a very famous economist at that time at Johns Hopkins, decided to check out the company town for himself. This final segment is about his trip to the town and what he found when he got there. It was a gorgeous little town, but it deprived its residents of any voice and left them at the whim of its unelected, unaccountable mayor, George Pullman. Much of the research for this segment is based on an article that Richard Ely wrote, but it also comes from the website of the Pullman National Historical Park, which sits on the site of the former company town and is open to the public. Links to these sources and others are listed in the show notes. Richard Ely boarded the Illinois Central in downtown Chicago on a train heading south. He was drawn to the city from Baltimore because of the apparent miracle that one of Chicago's titans of industry, George Pullman, had pulled off. At a time of disruptive, violent, and even deadly labor revolts, particularly in the city of Chicago, George Pullman was claiming to have devised the cure, a way to keep workers happy and businesses running uninterrupted. The founder of the eponymous Pullman Palace Car Company took a radical approach, something not done to this extent anywhere else in the world. He created his own town. Unsurprisingly named Pullman, this company town would house most of Mr. Pullman's laborers and their families, and would do so with a much higher quality of life than could be found elsewhere in the city. Labor relations were a central problem for the United States, and it was something that Dr. Ely, an economics professor at Johns Hopkins, had thought a lot about. He approached Pullman with healthy skepticism and wanted to see for himself whether this grand project could in fact live up to the promises that its founder and his boosters, of which there were many, made to a society eager for solutions. What Ely had not expected, though, was that the 45-minute train ride from downtown to Pullman would inadvertently provide an opening argument for why such a company town should exist. Pullman Palace cars were the most luxurious train cars in existence, and they revolutionized rail travel, making it possible even for middle-class passengers to ride in elegance. They provided unrivaled peace, comfort, and service at a time when rail lines were expanding across the country. But Dr. Ely was not in a Pullman Palace car. The case for the train magnet's town was not found on the train itself, but rather outside its windows. The journey through Chicago's south side revealed both the splendor and grit of the city. Towering manufacturing plants, throngs of people, and countless horses were huddled together amid hazy clouds of pollution and dirt, all seeming to fight each other for elbow room. Frail, wood-framed houses lined the streets, many of them shabby or even dilapidated. Dr. Ely could see roads filled with animal feces, stagnant water, and piles of garbage. And he watched carriages and people travel over all that filth, seemingly unfazed by what lied beneath them. Taverns were another common sighting, one on every single block, it seemed, with undoubtedly countless more further inland. But what stuck out the most was Packingtown, the home of the Chicago Union stockyards. 
The 450-acre butchering plant and its surrounding neighborhood lived perpetually in stench and grime. The clouds of flies and mosquitoes were large enough to be visible from Dr. Ely's train, and despite it being a sweltering hot summer day, he could not identify a single home with the window open and figured this was done to keep the buzzing multitudes from getting inside. The size and scope of the stockyards was certainly impressive, and many tourists indeed did get off at the Packingtown stop. But it seemed also to beg the question, why not build something like Pullman? The residents of Packingtown, most of them poor, desperate immigrants from Eastern Europe, lived lives scarcely better than the very animals they slaughtered. They battled the unbearable heat in the summer and braved through unbelievable cold in the winter, all the while subjecting themselves to putrid odors hanging in the air, and for the men, ghastly working conditions. It was almost as if George Pullman himself had organized the layout of the South Side so that passengers of the Illinois Central would, by the time of their arrival to Pullman, invariably conclude that industry and humanity both desperately needed something like this kind of company town. And as a matter of fact, the front entrance of the town proved to be a welcome sight for Dr. Ely. As he stepped out of the station, he saw a wide boulevard free of waste and debris, and lined instead with beautiful elm trees on both sides. His eyes followed the path of the boulevard to a pristine lake, equipped with its own waterfall. And around the station, Dr. Ely could see a well-manicured park, a limestone church, and the town's own hotel, all neat, orderly, and new. The visual contrast to Chicago is what initially struck Dr. Ely. Once inside the town, he noticed the rows of cottages and townhomes on each side of the macadamized roads. The roof designs, a collage of French roofs, flat roofs, turrets, triangles, and all sorts of shapes, were varied so as to avoid monotony, yet they still conveyed a strong sense of unity. Every lawn was neatly trimmed and of the same exact length, and all the streets crossed sharply at right angles. Dr. Ely came to appreciate the homes even more once he had the opportunity to look inside. Although their accommodations were modest, it was nonetheless impressive that each one was equipped with heat and running water. More impressive still, nothing appeared broken. No busted windows, no missing doorsteps, no holes in the walls. This was certainly something that no laborer in Packingtown could have boasted about their own home. The public spaces were just as impressive and even more splendid. The 800-seat theater was beautifully ornamented in a way that nearly matched the elegance of the Madison Square Theater in New York. The library contained 6,000 volumes, all donated by Mr. Pullman himself, and was furnished with Wilson carpets and plush chairs. The hotel was also elegantly furnished and contained the only bar within town limits. Although suspicious of big industrial leaders, Dr. Ely admired the thrift of Pullman. Since the entire town had been practically built all at once, the savings from purchasing building material in bulk were enormous and Mr. Pullman made sure that the rent he charged to tenants was high enough to guarantee at least a 6% return on all property. On this point, Pullman was proud to claim that his town advanced a crucial social mission while also turning a profit. However, Dr. Ely did also take note of instances where this pursuit of profitability seemed excessive. As he would come to learn, in fact, nothing was free in Pullman. Even the library charged an annual fee of $3 a year high for a laborer, and contrary to the custom of providing the service for free. The rental fee for the church also proved too expensive for any one religious denomination, so the different sects had to pull their money together and share the space. Dr. Ely found this particularly egregious, 
as it was tantamount to denial of religious expression. Residential rates, though, were actually not that high. Dr. Ely figured that they were approximately three-fifths of what a laborer could find outside of Pullman. But what troubled him was the fact that a family could never own a home. Rather, they were forced to live as permanent renters. Worse still, every rental contract included a clause stipulating that occupants could be forced to leave with just 10 days' notice, and for no reason whatsoever. The town did provide other benefits that were unique to the industry. For workers who became too injured to carry on with their primary work, every effort was made to find them suitable employment. To those who were temporarily injured, they continued to receive full pay while they recovered. And even in cases of gross negligence on the part of workers, those injured workers still received pay, although at a sharply diminished rate. Town officials made a point to compliment renters who maintained clean homes, writing thank you notes or providing free plants for decoration. One town official even organized for some homes, particularly those occupied by the poorest laborers, to have wallpaper hung free of charge. There was no question about it. Life at Pullman was polished. It was neat, it was orderly, it was organized, peaceful, predictable, and reliable. It provided a quality of life to hardworking families who had probably never experienced such a livelihood before. Throughout his stay, Dr. Ely could not find a single person who expressed a negative word about the town, at least not openly. The sense of discontent wasn't even detectable when he first arrived. His awe for the picture-perfect town was matched with attendant city officials and polite residents. There was no way that these residents, dependent on Pullman for their homes and their jobs, were going to tell a stranger, brand new to the town and taking notes, how they really felt about the town. For all they knew, Dr. Ely could have been a mole for the palace car company, a tactic that Pullman had been known to employ. For those first few days, Dr. Ely soaked in the pleasance of a town putting its best foot forward. Yet as time went on, he began to learn more about George Pullman's governing philosophy. In short, it was autocracy. In exchange for a stable job and a nice living situation, workers had to live the lives that George Pullman alone had designed for them. The theater, for instance, maintained a strict censure policy on what could and could not be shown. The one and only bar on the premises deliberately sold alcohol at prohibitive prices. There were no newspapers permitted, and were one to exist, an official confidently told Dr. Ely, it would have to be under the direct control of the Palace Car Company. Town hall meetings where residents could most directly speak to officials and voice their opinions were another thing that was conspicuously and deliberately absent. But most troubling of all was the fact that there were no elections. Higher level managers of the Palace Car Company filled the roles of city officials or were appointed by those managers. Turnover in these roles was constant and nepotism and favoritism determined occupancy. A new superior would come in and install his friends in a number of positions and in a short time, Another superior would replace the old one and repeat the same process, all the while systematically ignoring the will of the workers. There was also high turnover among the residents. After he had become more acquainted with the residents and they with him, a woman confided in Dr. Ely that after just two years at Pullman, only three other families who had been there when they first arrived still remained in the town. So would you say it's like living in a hotel? Dr. Ely had asked her, trying to think of a parallel. The woman shook her head slightly. Well, we call it camping out, she replied. Of course, this feeling was amplified by the knowledge that a resident could never own a home and could be evicted on short notice and for no reason. The luster of Pullman had faded for Dr. Ely as he understood the mechanics underneath it. Sure, a town could be made tidy, organized, and reliable, and even comfortable. 
All you had to do was silence your residents and control how they conducted themselves. To Dr. Ely, this was anathema to the American spirit. It can look good, and it may even work for a short time, but at its core it denied freedom and voice and promoted a naked drive for power and profits. And it certainly would not act in the best interest of residents under truly difficult times. As Dr. Ely would write for Harper's Magazine, it matters not that they are well-meaning capitalists. All capitalists are not devoted heart and soul to the interest of their employees. And the history of the world has long ago demonstrated that no class of men are fit to be entrusted with unlimited power. In the hour of temptation and pressure, it is abused, and the real nature of the abuse may for a time be concealed even from him guilty of it, but it degrades the dependent, corrupts the morals of the superiors, and finally this is done unblushingly in the light which was once scarcely loud in a dark corner. As it would turn out, those difficult times were very close on the horizon. In 1893, just a few years after Dr. Ely visited Pullman, an economic depression swept the country. George Pullman cut wages to workers, but refused to reduce their rent, leaving them with only a few dollars of discretionary spending each month. Eventually, the workers formed a strike, the very thing that the Pullman town was designed to prevent. The workers joined forces with the powerful American Railway Union, led by Eugene Debs, who ordered a total boycott on all Pullman cars. The strike left rail passengers stranded, increased the price of commodities, delayed mail delivery, and even forced the closure of several mines and lumber mills across the country. Yet Pullman adamantly refused to meet with the strikers, much less reach any sort of agreement with them. Instead, he was able to convince President Cleveland to send in federal troops to arrest the strikers and allow for alternate workers to resume operations. This eventually brought an end to the strike, but it also brought down the reputation of George Pullman and his model town. While the strike was not popular and public sentiment was not entirely on the side of labor, Pullman's fierce stubbornness was poorly received by detractors and supporters alike. George Pullman died a few years after the strike in 1897, and in many ways his town followed suit the very next year. The Illinois Supreme Court ruled in 1898 that the Palace Car Company had to sell off all non-industrial property, including the homes that the laborers up until then never had the ability to own. In their ruling, the court argued that Pullman's experimental town was incompatible with the theory and spirit of our institutions. The company was slow to act on this ruling, but by 1907, all residential properties had been sold, with workers given the first opportunity to purchase them. By this time, though, Pullman had already been formally part of Chicago for almost 20 years, so the model town, as its grand architect had imagined it, ceased to exist in every practical sense and it quickly became a relic of the past. The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal-Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends, and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.